I had consistent, steady childcare from the time my daughter was three months old until we packed her off to college. I had a good job, I had health insurance, and I felt like I was hanging on by my fingertips. And so back then, 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago, I used to say, well, if it's this hard for me, what must it be like for those working families that have no safety net? Every decision we make is guided by incentives, group incentives, individual incentives. How we are rewarded shapes how we behave and the choices we make. From financial incentives to social and political incentives, our lives are shaped by external forces pushing us in certain directions. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the past few weeks, we've spoken with academics and experts to understand how incentives work and the ways in which they impact our decisions in a three-part series we're calling What Drives Us. Today, in the final episode of this special series, I'm joined by Valerie Jarrett, currently the CEO of the Obama Foundation and previously a White House advisor to President Barack Obama. We talk about her extraordinary career and the role of incentives in government, as well as how leaders can use incentives to build coalitions and drive change. So, you know, just looking at reading about everything you've done, it's just you're such an extraordinarily interesting woman. I find you to be a very empathetic person brilliant and very rational. And I think those things don't often go together. You also seem very patient. And I wonder how you would compare the Valerie Jarrett of today with the 28-year-old Valerie Jarrett. There's no comparison, Jill. I don't even recognize that person. And I guess, look, we all hope to grow and evolve with time. But at 28, I was married I was just about to have my daughter or had just had her. I, I had her just shy of my 29th birthday. I was working in a big corporate law firm. And on paper, I was doing exactly what I was, I was supposed to do. I had married the boy next door, had a great profession, had a baby. What more could you want? And I was miserable, hmm. absolutely miserable. And it took me really having my daughter and looking at her and asking the question, is she going to ever really be proud of me if I continue on this both professional and personal path? And I reached the conclusion that she wouldn't. And I have always been proud of my mother, who worked at a time where most women were not working. And she started a graduate school and early childhood education. And she managed that mighty juggle that I call it of making me feel like I was the most important person in the world while still managing a very demanding career. And I took great pride in that career. And I just thought, She's never going to feel that way about me. And so misery, coupled with wanting my daughter to be proud, is what propelled me initially into the public sector, and I've never looked back. Well, I thought that was so interesting. I was taken aback when I read that having your daughter was part of the impetus and how she would think about you and look at you. And it's interesting to hear about how you thought about your mom and what an influence she had on you. And I wonder... You oversaw the Committee of Girls and Women in the White House. And so it seems to me that we don't all have moms like you had. And we know how much those influences, how important they are to how we make decisions about our own lives. And you need things to emulate and to aspire to and, and to imagine. And so how did you think about that sitting, you know, in that sort of position 
thinking about girls and women across the country. I often say, Jill, it's very hard to be what you can't see. Yeah. And I was really fortunate to have up close and personal an extraordinary role model. And I was really, really fortunate to have had, when I became a single mom, to have had parents who lived a mile away. My dad took my daughter to school every day. I had consistent, steady childcare from the time my daughter was three months old until we packed her off to college. I had a good job. I had health insurance. And I felt like I was hanging on by my fingertips. And so back then, 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago, I used to say, well, if it's this hard for me, what must it be like for those working families that have no safety net, that are living paycheck to paycheck at best, who are one medical emergency away from bankruptcy, who'd leave their children in circumstances that they don't think are safe and nurturing and healthy? And so the Council on Women and Girls was really created at the White House under President Obama for the first time because Tina Chin, who was my partner in this, who was the executive director and I was the chair, she too was a single mom in just the same situation as I. And we spent our early adulthood working on gender equity and trying to figure out how do we level the playing field for women and girls, ensure that every young girl has the same opportunity, the same role models, the same support system that we had. And then how do we start to remove those barriers once you enter the workforce that hold so many women back? And some of those barriers are cultural. Some of those barriers are really just a matter of not having the right practices in place and the right policies. And some of those barriers, to be really candid, we put on ourselves. I mean, I don't know about you, but I thought I was superhuman. I thought I could do everything. I could keep a zillion balls up in the air at one time. And when they started falling and I'm looking around, I thought it was a sign of weakness to ask for help. And my mother was the one that said, girl, you're dropping a lot of balls. Why don't you ask for help? That's what your family and friends are for. And when I began to do that and began to open up about how hard it was, I found this incredible nurturing environment of support. And so many of us in my generation were just trying to pretend like it was okay. And I realized it's okay to not be okay. Yeah, I think it's such an important lesson for women, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I have the same conversations all the time. I was with a group of women in business school here in Boston. And I was very honest with them about what it was like to be an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur. And, you know, when we started having kids and raising a family, what it felt like for real. And they, (laughs) no one ever says those things. You think you're the only one struggling and then you find it, oh no, everybody's struggling. And that we don't have to put, you know, we don't have to be so darn perfect. No, exactly. You should get up at, you know, wait or stay up until like two in the morning and make baby food from scratch. And I told my daughter, you know what? I think you would have been just fine with a little bit less of that, you know, me trying to make up for the fact that I was working by doing things that really wouldn't have made any difference in your outcome, but somehow made me feel like I was making up for shortcomings. No, I totally, I totally understand it. Well, so you you moved into the public sector. How did you end up in the mayor's office? Did you just, you were still following a legal track at that point? Yeah, well, so I, I started out in the Corporation Council, the law department for the city, mm-hmm. for four years. And I was there, I was, I was really inspired to join local government by Mayor Harold Washington. Mm-hmm. He was the first black mayor of Chicago, and he was, he was such a 
big tent kind of person. He made everybody feel like he, you know, we're in this together. And I felt like I was a part of something bigger and more important than myself. And he drew me in and he was really trying to populate his law department with people from the private sector to bring some of those best practices in-house. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, he died just a few months after I joined. I joined in August. He died in November. And then I stayed through Mayor Sawyer, who was a mayor um, on an interim basis. And then two years into Mayor Daly, so four years in, I had just I'd been overseeing finance and development in the law department. And I did a lot of work with the mayor's senior team and his chief of staff because we were trying to revitalize not only Chicago's downtown, but our neighborhoods as well. Mm. And the mayor, Mayor Dale, asked me to be his deputy chief of staff in 1991. And I'd practiced law by that point for 10 years. And so as much as I didn't enjoy it in the private sector, I really loved it in-house. I love my client being the citizens of Chicago. And so I took this leap of faith, knowing why I would always be able to go back. And I haven't practiced law since 91. And so so that's when I became his deputy chief of staff. And that's when I met Michelle Robinson. Right. And so, and I want to get to that in just a second, but as deputy chief of staff, you saw everything. I, I would imagine you're in up to your ears, I think, in all things that it takes to run a city. And I, you know, I think about the services that a city needs to provide, food and shelter, dealing with potholes and rats. I mean, it's really like the gamut, planning and development. How is the city going to grow? How does it house people? And also education. And I don't know if you know this, but I I co-host another podcast with Ross called Last Night at School Committee, which is Mm -hmm. hyper-local, and we focus on Boston's school committee meetings and what's happened. And I, I find... You know, I I was a public school kid, and I find public schooling in America very interesting. I did not know that much about urban education until, you know, kind of I started the foundation with Neerich and, and Ross. And I, I'm wondering if you have a perspective on this, right? Because we know how important education is to the success of our country and to the success of individuals, and yet we fall down on making sure that every child is equally educated. And I wonder, do you have a point of view on why is it so hard to transform education? Why can't we fix the problems of education, especially in urban districts in the country? I think, unfortunately, it all comes down to money. Talent is ubiquitous, as you know. Opportunity is what's not. And if I look at the price per child that is spent on in the suburbs of Chicago compared to the price per child in the inner city, it's thousands of dollars a year difference. Hmm. And, and, you know, if you have a classroom of 35 kids, you're just going to learn in a different way than if you have a classroom of 18 children. Right. And you layer on to that, many of our children in our cities have additional issues other than being coming to school ready to learn. As you know, having addressed this head on in Boston, many of our children go to school hungry. Right. Many of our children are exhausted. Many of our children are working and doing their homework in an environment that either doesn't have access to the internet or the households are disruptive and, and they're not having the kind of nurturing, supportive environment that allows children to thrive. And oftentimes our school teachers are expected to be social worker and police and, and all of the things that these young people need. And they can't be all of that, particularly while they're trying to manage a class that is oversized. And so I think what we all need to recognize is that every child should have the same amount spent on their education, regardless of their zip code, and that children who have special needs because of the environment in which they're 
are being raised need to have more money, not right. less money. Right. We need to have ensure that the teachers are getting the training they need, that we are weeding out the teachers that are not the best performers at the same time as we're giving them those augmented services that they need to make sure that the young people come in their classroom ready to learn. It's going to really take the average American saying, this is important, even if my child doesn't go to public school, right. even if I now have grandchildren or great-grandchildren, so therefore it may not be as proximate. It is important, and the private sector oftentimes ends up supplementing the quality of education through training that they have to do before people actually are ready for the jobs that are going to be available. And this is only going to get more challenging as we become more technology dependent. You add AI onto the market. And what I'm finding is more and more private employers are like, okay, let me just go in there and do this myself because you can't rely on the public school system to do the job. Yeah. And maybe that is what is going to happen is that the system itself, those who ultimately need the employees will end up solving the problem because they're the ones with the most skin in the game. It's such an extraordinarily difficult issue. And yet I think it's one of the things that will make our country continue to excel or will really derail us. We're going to fall behind because other countries have figured this out. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you have really seen, you've seen America at all levels. You've seen it at the city level, city government level, at the state level, and at the federal level. Who has the biggest lever, do you think? Well, my experience is that you need all the levers turning at the same time. Not only do you need government all acting in a seamless, coordinated way, but you need civil society and the private sector as well. And I learned that lesson working in local government. I learned so much, Joe, in local government that has helped me throughout my life. Um, You mentioned patience. Well, patience comes from having children, number one, because they make you selfless and patient. But also, I found working in local government it was on me to earn people's trust and confidance. And you now I'd show up in the beginning and I'm, well, I'm from the city hall and I'm here to help you. And people would go, well, city hall's never helped me before. Why should I trust you? And I had to have the patience to earn their trust and go through the hoops of doing it, showing up time after time again when people would yell and scream at me at public hearings. And you have to develop a tough skin and you have to believe that what you're doing is so noble that it makes up for all the grief that you're going to get. But when I worked, for example, um, running the Department of Planning and Development, and we would go out into the community and we would listen to people's stories about how they wanted their community revitalized, we had resources at the local level, land, for example, that we could make available, vacant land for a dollar. We had the ability to tear down demolished buildings, add resources to historic buildings, improve the streets and sidewalks, use city dollars to incentivize businesses to go into communities, improve the park system, focus on the school system, focus on public safety. And our view is you have to take a holistic view as you look at a community. And the state and the federal government also had dollars that trickled down that were really important to that effort. And I used to always say I would never work for the federal government because I felt it was so detached from what we were doing on the ground and that why did communities have to tailor their needs to meet these programmatic goals at the federal level? Why couldn't the federal government be more flexible and do what the people in the community wanted? Which stayed with me when I worked in the federal government, always trying to look at what we were doing through the eyes of the people we were there to serve. But I found that 
where change was really sustainable over time. If I look at the communities around Chicago where we invested, the ones that have improved 30 years later are the ones where businesses entered the community. There are ones where you have all kinds of not-for-profits who are doing affordable housing or job training, et cetera, and where the government really made it a priority. And so when you have all those levers going at the same time and strong community-based leadership and strong elected officials at the local level, all of that is the secret sauce. And I have seen the best laid plans fall apart because one strong community activist was determined to not let something well-meaning and good happen. And you have to have, so the politicians have to have the political will to listen, but ultimately realize you've got to do what you think is best. And no one is ever going to be 100% on board. People are fundamentally afraid of change. And look, we were all about hope and change. And what I realized is that people thought, oh, no, that means you change. Oh, you mean I have to change? Oh, no, 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 I don't want to change. Even if they think it's change for the better, they are resistant. And that's when trust becomes so really important. And having people working at that local level who are prepared to earn trust and not, not think that your title is sufficient because it's not. It's very human. Well, I don't. I don't remember. But did you did you change the messaging then when President Obama ran for the second term? Did you get rid of change? Well, well you know, no. We stayed with hope and change, but we explained a little bit more how hard they were. I think people thought hope and change were kind of you know folksy terms. And what you did find is that he said, "Oh, do you realize how hard it is to be hopeful?" in the face of the kind of opposition that I had. You take something like the Affordable Care Act, here we're trying to provide affordable health care to Americans. Why is that such a controversial thing to do? And yet, he remained hopeful and determined to change. And now, you look back at all these people who have health insurance or not discriminating against for pre-existing conditions or kids who could stay on their parents' plans until they're 26. And it's transformational, totally. but it... If you just allowed the negative rhetoric to, to get to you, you just go along with the status quo. And that's why you just you have to have this kind of internal fortitude and resilience and compass that says, yeah, change is going to be really hard. And that's where that's where hope comes in. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's how hope plays in. That's interesting. So back in when you were working with Mayor Daley, that's when, as you mentioned, you met then Michelle Robinson, who was a young attorney at the time, was she just kind of responding to an open job that you had posted or how did, how did you end up meeting her? Yeah. So she had mentioned to one of the partners in her law firm that she really did not want to stay at a law firm. And as much as they didn't want to see her go, this partner had taken a real interest in her, sent her resume to the Corporation Council for Chicago, who sent it to me. And she said, I want to explore public service. I don't think I want to practice law. And, you know, she's great credentials, Princeton undergrad, Harvard Law School, Sidley Austin. And so I called her up and invited her in for an interview. And what was supposed to be like a 20-minute interview, an hour and a half later, not only had she blown me away and told me her personal story and never mentioned anything on her resume. We just started talking. I talked about what motivated me, my having a child. She mentioned her dad and her best friend had died in the prior year. That's what had been a wake-up call for her. And we just both wanted to, like, change the city that we had grown up in and make it better. Yeah. And so I offered her a job on the spot. And she said, well, let me think about it. And a couple of days later, I called her to check in. And I said, well? And she said, well, I have bad news. My fiancé thinks it's a dreadful idea. 
And I said, well, who's your fiance and why do we care what he thinks? <laughs> well, his name is Barack Obama. He started as a community organizer and he's not sure be going right from a law firm working for Mayor Daley, who he wasn't the biggest fan mm. of. Makes sense. Would you have dinner with us? And quite wisely in retrospect, I said yes. How did that strike you without that request? Well, it's a, well I would have done anything. If she'd said, you know, come and meet whomever, I would have said, sure, because I really wanted her. Was she the I, dynamo that she is today? Uh, like with- Just every, I, she walked in, I can see her, still see her. Yeah. Walking in my office, she was dressed in black, she had her hair pulled back, barely any makeup, shook my hand, confident, looked me right in the eye. Yes. And she asked me really hard questions and I had just gotten the job. So I didn't know any of the answers. And she was really like pushing me hard. And I'm thinking most people can't wait to work in the mayor's office. She's like acting like I'm being interviewed for the job myself. And then when she threw her fiance on top of it, but I really wanted her and I was curious. And so why not? And I will say what struck me after a three hour dinner with both of them Jill, I was sure of two things. Number one, that they would be married forever. I thought these are kindred spirits. Yes, I thought it was a little odd that I was coming along to meet her fiancé. But I will say in the 32 years since that dinner, he has not made a single big decision in his career without her at the table. And so it was it was an indication of this mutual respect and that there was a partnership. They were making these decisions as a team. So I was sure that they would be married forever. And obviously, I've been quite true, quite correct on that. And then the second thing is I thought maybe, maybe one day he could be mayor of Chicago. Oh, interesting. Because he told me all about his passion for public service and he yeah. loved Chicago. And, you know, having grown up in Hawaii and gone to school in Boston, he'd come back to Chicago. And so I thought, you really have potential, young man. Huh. So let's see if we can one day get you elected mayor. So needless to say, he reminds me quite frequently that he exceeded my expectations, That's, as did they as a couple. That is so great. And so he ended up a senator, and then, which I'm imagining you had a hand in. Well, my hand in his run for the U.S. Senate was encouraging him not to run. He had just lost a congressional race to uh, Bobby Rush in our district. We live in we live on the same block in Chicago. Uh-huh. And he, I thought, well, if you can't beat Bobby Rush with as many people as we know in our own neighborhood, how are you going to win a U.S. Senate seat? And so Michelle Obama agreed with me for other reasons. Mm-hmm. She didn't know necessarily he couldn't win, but she was tired of politics. And she thought, why don't you get a real job? And so she and I put together a brunch at my home with his closest friends to try to talk him out of running for the U.S. Senate. And what I remember most clearly that he said at that very long brunch was, you all are afraid I'll lose. And we said, (laughs) yes. And he said, well, I'm not afraid. And if I'm not afraid I'm going to lose, then why are you guys so afraid? Come on, let's try this. Worst thing that happens, I'll lose. And Michelle said, okay, if you lose, are you ready to, like, get a real job and stop all this nonsense with politics? Mm -hmm. And so he said yes, and so she said, okay, let's get this done. Let's And so, yes, my hand in it was trying to talk him out of it. It's a miracle he's ever listened to any other advice I've given him. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. So how much of that was just manifesting that win, do you think? You know what? I think the stars were aligned for him. His primary opponent in the primary dropped out because of allegations that his opponent's wife had made about him and their divorce. His opponent in the general election dropped out, primary opponent, because other issues with he and his wife and going to sex clubs. And so 
So the biggest opponents drop out, and he ends up running against somebody who wasn't even from Illinois, who never had any traction. And but but I will say this: he worked steadily throughout. And when there were seven people in the race, and he was at three or four points in the poll, he went around that state. And that work began. And this is kind of an important message in terms of, I think, not just Barack Obama, but leadership in general. When he was a state senator and representing our district in Chicago, he went downstate Illinois all the time. Why? Because he knew he had to vote on matters having to do with farming and agriculture, and he wanted to understand it. And when someone from Chicago goes down to, you know, southern Illinois, Mattoon, or wherever, they're surprised, and it makes front-page news. Yeah. And so people downstate knew him better than I had appreciated, in large part because he laid the foundation for it, doing his job. And so you often hear people, like, do the job you have really well, and that'll enable you to get the next job. And he took being a state senator as more than just representing his district, but also representing the entire state. And so I think that helped propel him, in addition to his major opponents kind of crashing and burning. But then kind of the force field just continued because it was so quickly that he was running for president and became president of the United States. I mean, that must have, did that feel like a whirlwind from the inside? He's just, he bedazzled America. He he did bedazzle America. Well, I'll give you a data point. When he wrote his first book, Dreams for My Father, the first edition, came out in like the mid to late, like 96, I think, maybe. My parents gave a book party for him. I had to twist the arms of about 40 people to show up. Everybody fit seated in my parents' living room. And then when he wrote Audacity of Hope after he was in the Senate, my parents also gave him a book party and it was pouring down rain and there was a line around the block. Wow. And I remember that night as we were shepherding people into the tent and people were soaking wet and he gave this unbelievable speech about the sacrifice Michelle had made to get him this far and how much it meant to him. And I thought, it's really, it's something's happening here. And I think, frankly, for the world, watching him give that speech at the convention in 2004, when he was still running for U.S. Senate, is what put him, propelled him onto the national stage. And he became really the darling in the Senate and did a lot of traveling around the country, fundraising for other members. But he also like kept his head down and did his job in the Senate really, really well, too. But it was like lightning in a bottle. And Look, we had really serious conversations about whether he should wait and another eight years and let some time pass. And I think where everyone kind of concluded is you got to kind of strike when the iron is hot. But it was a tough decision because obviously he knew he was going to be going up against Hillary Clinton, who was formidable to say the very least. Absolutely. Absolutely. The the momentum was was extraordinary. You know, I was wondering as I was preparing for this, though, there was some thought given to you being appointed to his seat. And and I, I wonder how that was for you to be thinking about that or being in Washington. And, and that must have, I mean, because, you know, as I sit here and think about it, I was like, well, guess who could be the candidate right now for, <laughs> you know, I'm like, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. I get, I, I, it could still be here. I mean, why shouldn't you run for president, really? I know too much. <laughs> you, would, you would be amazing. But no, but what was that like? Well, so, so the answer to your question is I did think about it. I had thought about running for mayor if Mayor Daley had not run for his last term, but then he did, and I would never run against him. I couldn't have beat him, and he was a mentor to me. And so if he had not run, I thought about it. And then when the Senate came up, my 
parents, my daughter, my closest friends all thought I should do that or put my name in the hat for it. Yeah. And, you know, there's a struggle between being a staff person and being, you know, the, the principal. And I was at that point CEO of a real estate company. It was the largest uh, multifamily housing development and management company in Chicago at the time. And my roots were deep in Chicago. I was on several boards that I cared passionately about, sharing the University of Chicago Medical Center board. And I was really a part of that community that I knew so well. And I remember President Obama said, look, I know the Senate and I know what it means to be a senator because I've been a senator and I know what I'm going to try to build in the White House and the role that I want you to fulfill. And you need to trust me that this is where you belong in the White House. And when you're, you know, one of your dearest friends in the world who has been like a brother to you also happens to be the president elect yeah. of the United <laughs> States of America, it's really hard to say no. And he did craft together a portfolio for me that involved intergovernmental affairs, which was overseeing the state and local elected officials who I'd worked with so closely when I was in local and overseeing the transit authority that was regional government, public engagement. And so much of what I'd learned working for the city was dealing with the public and listening to them and making sure that the stakeholders that whose lives were going to be impacted by our decisions had a voice at the table. And that was really important to me. And to be a senior advisor, which means that every single piece of paper and decision that went into him went through us first. And to be one of three senior advisors Reporting to the president of the United States just seemed too good to turn down. And in retrospect, he was absolutely right. I think I would have been very frustrated <laughs> as a senator compared to being on the executive branch. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I understand why you ended up where you ended up on it, but it must have been just a difficult, you know, decision to make. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, he got elected. I had to quit my job, find my successor try to sell my apartment, find a place to live in D.C. There was a lot going and be a co-chair of his transition. And so right. help, you know, recruit his cabinet and his agenda and the policies. And while, while the entire economy was in free fall. Yeah. So those were some amazing but terrifying few months. Well, so ta first talk to me about that piece of it, because you chair, you were co-chair of the transition team. And and like you said, the country was in uh, a difficult situation and you're all the new kids on the block and you enter the White House. What in the world is that like? Do, I mean, Terrifying. to transition, <laughs> I can imagine. Terrifying. We did the transition in Chicago, which made it a little easier so we didn't have to move quite so early right after the election. Okay. But we we also had a transition office in D.C. And so I was shuttling back and forth and you know interviewing candidates for the cabinet and for senior White House posts and we had lots of meetings with him going over what to do about the economy, and he was beginning to recruit his economic team. And so mm. trying to you know, think through the economic advice in the context of other priorities, because keep in mind, he also wanted to do the Affordable Care Act, and he was concerned about climate change. He had a very robust agenda, not to mention two wars and the automobile industry on the verge of bankruptcy. Right. And so trying to be as efficient as we could with our time and as organized and disciplined was good practice during the transition to set us up for when we walked in on January 20th and really had to hit the ground running. And as you said, I mean, I would say on the senior level, maybe a quarter of us knew each other and had worked on the campaign, but none of us had worked together in the executive branch of the White House before. And then there were all these other new people who we had recruited in who were subject matter experts. And so trying to form 
this cohesive group to work together who didn't have the foundation of trust. What we had in common was really the president and our commitment to serve him. But it took a while, as he would say, to go from having the best players on the field to having the best team. And I think building trust mm. is what happened in between. Well, so as, as one of the three senior advisors, you said you, you see every piece of paper before it's presented with him. And, and I would imagine you and the other two advisors are, are debating and considering and thinking about incentives. And how do you... How, what was your approach? How did you ensure that your optics were always aligned with the American people? Because I would imagine you yes. also have to think about what what's the effect of the White House? What's the effect of the president's role? How do you position yourself? What, what, what's your yeah. mindset? Well, he always had three advisors. I was the only one that stayed all eight years. But usually he had an advisor that was responsible for communications, speech writing, messaging, he had an advisor to begin with who had been his chief of staff in the Senate, who knew the Senate really well, really knew Washington well. And so, and then he had a chief of staff uh, who'd been a member of Congress and so the House. And so we really came at this from different perspectives, me having been in local government and the rest of the team. And so we debated all the time and we would go at it. And I think the good thing I can say about the advisors all the way through is, is that we really were just trying to serve him best and to make sure that any decision he made, and ultimately he made the calls, was informed yeah. and informed by our true north, which was serving our country. Yeah. And so there were political considerations, but I will say he never let politics drive the decision-making. It was important to understand what the risks were. And look, we lost the midterm elections in 2010, primarily because he pushed for the Affordable Care Act. Mm. And so he knew it was a dicey political move. But the night the Affordable Care Act passed, I remember asking him at like two in the morning when we were out celebrating on the Truman balcony, how do you feel tonight compared to election night, which was a magnificent night in our hometown of Chicago and Grant Park. And I said, how do you feel? And he said, oh, there's no comparison. Election night was simply the means to get to this night where I could actually deliver. And yes, there was a very hefty political price we paid. But the calculus always has to be, what's the point of having that political capital if you're not prepared to use it for something that's good? And back to the earlier part of our conversation, now the Affordable Care Act is the law of the land. Republicans had the opportunity to repeal it. They didn't. Why? Because the American people really like it now. And so he had to be prepared to kind of take the daggers and everything that came at him and the political consequences, keeping his eye on what was the long view, which is the true north that drives him and that he insisted drove us, which is what's best for the country. I imagine those conversations were incredible in, in the White House because when you talk about incentives, there's so many obvious incentives at play when it comes to health care and, you know, the average human being. It's an uphill battle, really, to create something where everyone feels good and the American people feel like they are well served. That is just a juggernaut that I think is very, very hard to Ship. It was hard then, and it's getting even harder yeah. now. No, but except for the first lady made some very valiant efforts in this direction, which you know showed over time that they were hugely impactful. When she worked very hard on the school food movement, I mean, those changes. There's research now that shows that the changes that she helped to make happen really were 
deeply impactful on kids, on the health and wellness of kids yeah. who are growing into adults now. Well, I'm glad you mentioned um, our former first lady because I do think, particularly in the second term, he would often say we should do more of what she's doing, <laughs> which is using the bully pulpit and engaging, going kind of around the normal conventional way of communicating and meeting people where they are. And so she tried to turn healthy eating into an overall approach to let's make ourselves, you know, let's let's move, let's have fun, let's exercise, let's be informed about what we're eating so that we're making good choices. She's not the food police. She's just like, I just want you to know what, what's yeah. in what you're eating and yeah. to know what nutritionists might say and what role exercise and good mental health, all of that plays together. But she didn't do that in the kind of Washington sausage making. She did most of that outside of government, other than one time lobbying for the school nutrition bill, which she would probably say was not the best experience because she couldn't understand why do you all not want to spend more money so that our children have healthy food in school? Right. Why is that a problem? Right. But when she took the message to the general public, of course, it did resonate. And she helped a lot of parents just as she had needed help herself. And she told her story about what it was like when her children were young and she didn't realize the food that they were eating was not the most nutritious. No, of course. You know, and it's interesting, too, because the other side of that, you know, having done such deep work here in the city around school food is that inherently our observations were that even the smallest children make choices that are also happen to be good for their health and wellness. You know, if you give them a spectrum of colors in the form of fresh fruits and vegetables and healthy cooked meals, they don't avoid the healthy stuff. They go straight into it with like huge smiles and they're actually, you know, if it's deliciously prepared, yes, people like it. Is, so it's not right. like, you know, everyone prefers the, you know, the bag of salted, sweetened, fried snacks. It's, you know. Well, well it, as your research is showing in Boston, you have a lot less food that's being thrown away right. in the schools. Right. Because kids are eating good food that they want to eat and so they don't toss it. Right, exactly. So so let's talk about what you're doing now because now you're running the Obama Foundation. And we have, thank you very much, we have been working together on food and nutrition, doing some of the local lunchbox work that we did here in Boston. And, and I'm wondering, you know, as you rolled that out, local lunchbox was our take on what do you do during COVID initially when kids weren't in school? And how do you use federal funding to ensure that kids have access to healthy meals? And we did that in conjunction with businesses that were up and running, that were preparing food that was not only, you know, healthy and delicious, but also somewhat localized and, you know, had gave a nod to cultural preferences. I, I wonder, you know, you've seen that work on the ground. You had, you know, a, a great view into all of the work that the First Lady did and inspired. What does that impact look like in, in your eyes and how do we do more of it? Well, as you know, we want to take this school year throughout the school year and throughout the entire city. Yeah. And I think what you proved in Boston that we are testing out in Chicago now is, is that we can think of new creative ways of spending money that's there. This was not new money other than like some seed money that you put in. Yeah. This was money, as you said, it's coming from the USDA. And the question is, do you want to spend it in a way that provides healthy meals to children, creates jobs in the local level, gets people involved at the local level in terms of the restaurants that are there? Or do you want to continue to do business the way that we've been doing it? And so shaking things up and starting it out 
and kind of as a you know a little incubator a test project yeah. and figuring out what works so that you can take it to scale is what I'd like to see happening all over the country. And you, Jill, get so much credit for just having a good idea and saying, I think we can do this. And that's how change happens for the better. And it is a win-win-win. And, and obviously during the summer, kids who are not in school do not have that one free meal a day. And we know that so many of our children in Chicago without that meal don't get a good meal. And so it's vitally important for our children. They're going to learn better, be healthier when they're fed well. It's really important to me. This, as you know, was something that I pushed from the top down. And the people who are working on it and our partners who've been helping us with this in Chicago are so excited about continuing and expanding it as well. Yeah, it's so amazing. It is extraordinary the opportunities we have to rethink how we spend existing federal dollars and state dollars and city dollars, and that it would be great if we were all more encouraging of creativity when it comes to these things. Spend the money we have wisely and yeah. creatively and right. not let people say, oh, well, we've never done that before, get in the way of innovation. Yeah. So that's that's one part of what the Obama Foundation is doing, and it has a local perspective in Chicago on its work. It also has a global perspective. And so could you just talk a little bit about, you know, how you as its leader and President Obama and Mrs. Obama think about the impact that they want to have through the foundation? They're both still extraordinarily, you're also young still, really, and have like lived extraordinary lives. And, and so- yes. It's, it's wonderful, right? Because you're bringing this energy now into the world in a different way. What yes. is, what's the next 10 years look like? Well, it's, it's, I was smiling when you said that because a former president once said to President Obama, the best job in the world is former president. <laughs> and he said that to him soon after he got elected and President Obama didn't really understand because he'd been you know, looking forward to being president. Yeah. Now he's like, oh, I get it. This yeah, is yeah. really great because you're not shackled with the responsibilities of office and the political... And you can, in a sense, rise above it as that senior statesman. And to have both Obamas being incredibly globally popular allows us to put the spotlight on issues that are really important to us. And so the goal of our foundation is simply put to inspire, empower, and connect people to change their world. And we do that in a variety of different ways. We have leadership programs currently in Asia and Africa and Europe. University of Chicago and Columbia. And then we have a scholarship program for juniors and seniors in college that allows them in the summer to travel. And Airbnb is our partner and provides them with room. And I just met with three of those incredible hundred first class of 100 leaders yesterday. And they come back with this new sense of purpose and how they can take their goal of public service. But enlightened by a, by a more broad perspective. And so getting people outside of their comfort zone, having them connect just not with us, but with each other is also really important. We all met in Greece this summer for the first time everyone was together. And what, in listening to the testimonials afterwards, many of our leaders said, I thought I was all alone in this work and it's hard work. And now I have this community that will not just be with me when I'm in the program, but who I've built relationships with that hopefully will be lifelong partnerships and friendships where we can share best practice and we can grow together and we can network and we can really have a far bigger impact. And so I think when President Obama thinks of his legacy, sure, he thinks about those important eight years when he had the privilege of being president. 
but he believes that the legacy of what he does post-presidency that he's in the midst of doing right now truly has a chance to change the world. And then the final thing I would highlight for you, Jill, is we're focusing on democracy. And just uh, last week, the heads of all the presidential foundations, with the exception of one, signed a group letter talking about these principles of democracy that every American should be fighting for. Um, this is our responsibility as citizens, and it's our responsibility to hold those who are elected accountable to strengthen our democracy. And we began this last year with the summit in New York, and there we were focusing a lot on disinformation. And we're having one this year in November in Chicago, and we'll be focusing on inclusive capitalism and AI. And what are the threats to democracy, and what are the tools that we all have available to strengthen democracy? So that's kind of my elevator pitch of what the foundation is doing, but it's um, I thought I had the best job in the world when I was a senior advisor to the president, but I'll tell you, I wake up now every day really full of the infinite possibilities of this incredible platform we have to be this force for positive change. Yeah, really, I can't imagine a better platform and especially the vibrations that you all bring to that work. I mean, it's really, as you talk about it, the word unity and unification just keeps, you know, kind of going through my head and you know, they, it's at a time where technology and, and things like social media, potentially AI, for sure AI, everything's moving so quickly that, you know, there's demands on humans to act at the speed of the internet, as a, which is not a very human pace. It's interesting. When social media first began, I remember it started really at the beginning of President Obama's presidency. And yeah. We thought, oh, this is great. We're going to be able, everybody will be connected and yeah. you can reach people all over the world and your community grows as a result of that. And I think we did not think through sufficiently how it could be weaponized, how oh, it could I be know. used as a force to hurt and to divide and to polarize as opposed to bringing us together. And so a piece of what we want to do is to give people the tools to focus on bringing us together. And that's what drew these presidents, all from, you know, many from different parties, but all completely yeah. committed to strengthening our democracy and not, not letting the word democracy get hijacked and put into a political frame, but rather to remind ourselves that this is what our founding fathers designed that would make our country one and yeah. whole and not disparate. So how do you think about the future of the country from that perspective? We're headed into another presidential election and the country feels like it's in a place where it feels like it's in an uncomfortable place where people are maybe confused and worried. So yeah. I wonder, how do you think about it? Because you and President Obama and Mrs. Obama, you are forces of hope. How do we think about this from a hopeful perspective? Well, I still believe, continue to believe, I should say, that most people in our country are good and decent people. Right. They want to raise their children. They want to have a home that they can afford, provide for their families, hope their children do better than they do, retire with dignity, not have to worry about going bankrupt if they get sick. I mean, they, our, our most people's wishes are reasonable and not divisive and polarizing. I think the rhetoric in the political world and often oftentimes fueled in the media and social media is very toxic right now. And that is a threat. And the way I've been describing it is like the wheels on our democracy bus are a little wobbly right now and we need to tighten them up. 
And that's something everyone can do. And there's something that we as individuals can do. We can be responsible in how we use these platforms and control ourselves to not say the first thing that comes to your mind and, and not talk at each other, but try to engage with one another. And I always was raised to believe that um, you could disagree without being disagreeable. And the voices that you should listen to most closely are those that disagree with you because you'll learn something from that. And to try to exercise that by example and bring those forces together. And I also have the luxury now of, because we are a 501c3 and non-political, to try to appeal to people outside of the political frame. And that's where I think there are some really good conversations happening. And that's where our young leaders, now that we have these hundred leaders in the U.S., in addition to the ones in Asia and Africa and Europe, who are on the ground every single day changing their communities. And so I have evidence that good things are happening. And that keeps me hopeful because I just focus on those young people and I say, all right, you know, they're the change we've been waiting for. And as they come of age, they have the ability to hold political elected officials accountable in a way that perhaps we have not as much. And I've always thought there was kind of a disconnect between what you often see in Washington and what's actually happening on the ground. Back to my earlier conversation about why I liked, liked local government is that you're, you were close to your constituents. They knew your phone number. They knew, could knock on your door. They held you accountable. And I think that what we hope to do is to be able to give people the tools that they need to influence those who will be affecting their lives. And that happens through civic engagement and teaching people how to organize on the ground and not political organizing, but just organizing on the ground and getting a community together to decide what do we want our community to be like? And then holding that elected official that has the opportunity to impact your community accountable. And a lot of people, let's face it, don't know enough about how government works and they just think, what people thought when I showed up to those community meetings, ah, I don't want anybody from government coming because they can't possibly help me. Right, right. But yet government helps us all every single day. Yeah, 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 it's so true. I, wouldn't, I just want to talk to you for another couple hours, but I, I <laughs> know we're out of time. I, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me. I always learn so much when I talk to you. Great to see you. I look forward to seeing you soon. You too. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Valerie Jarrett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and this special series. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. To learn more about incentives and particularly how they guide big decisions around education, check out our other podcast, Last Night at School Committee, where Ross Wilson and I recap every Boston school board meeting and discuss all of the biggest public education decisions made impacting students and families of Boston. And if you really like to geek out on the topic of education, here's a quick preview of our new deep dive series. Do parents know right now that their child may be in a classroom, in a science classroom, with a teacher who doesn't know how to teach science? Science, yeah. Kids aren't feeling cared for. Kids aren't feeling loved. And so these are they're acting out. We get conditioned to buses always being a problem, and we just accept that that's what it is. We have to continue to push back and say, it's unacceptable to not have our students get to school and be picked up from school. For the past four years, the Last Night at School Committee podcast has recapped every Boston school board meeting, providing commentary and context on the key decisions made and their impact on students. If you're a parent in the district or you're enrolling into the district, 
you're enrolling into giant question marks. This will only be a highly functioning school committee if members are allowed to ask the right questions and if the school department is required to provide the answers. Now it's offering something more, deep dives, podcast episodes that each zoom into one issue that's affecting students and invite national experts to help us understand tangible solutions. The deep dives were inspired by our own curiosity in some of the issues that are raised at school committee. A topic is a good topic for deep dives if it's happening not just here in Boston, but it's happening in other school districts as well. And a good deep dive is one where there are experts that we can pull in to have great conversations that make people curious. We should be having conversations about social emotional support for our students. We should be having conversations about appropriate staffing in our schools to ensure that our students have qualified great teachers. We should be having conversations about safety. What's happening in education in Boston is a microcosm of what's happening across the country. And Deep Dives aims to get at the root of why it all matters. Like, let's just all say, shoot. This is a bit of a mess. Let's work together yeah. to try to solve it. Yeah. Coming soon to this feed and the Last Night at School Committee podcast feed starting October 26th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.